From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's Veterans Day, and in World War II, the U.S. military was harnessing a new power. The carefully chosen canines receive basic and specialized training, which toughens and prepares them for definite assignments under fire. In fact, they were taught to ignore gunfire and deliver messages from the front lines to the command post. We'll meet a Colorado man who trained these war dogs. Then, a plant you pass at 65 miles an hour and may not think twice about, but sagebrush is remarkable. Sagebrush has about 200 to 300 chemicals that they can use to communicate with other plants. Sagebrush is also vanishing. Why? We answer in Colorado Wonders, which is a twofer today. We'll also explain how Tabor refunds are dispersed now that Coloradans have voted to keep them. On Veterans Day, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. During World War II, the American military invested in a tool they hadn't taken full advantage of. This weapon had four legs and a tail. The carefully chosen canines receive basic and specialized training, which toughens and prepares them for definite assignments under fire. Dogs of many breeds rally to the colors. Although dogs had been used in warfare for centuries, it wasn't until the Second World War that the U.S. made a major investment in them. Marine Private Homer Finley, now 94, handled messenger dogs. He'll explain what that means shortly. I met up with Finley in his apartment at a senior living community in Longmont. Homer, thank you for having us in your home. You're welcome. You worked with what was called a war dog platoon. What were the dogs trained to do? Number one, we were the first Marine war dog platoon to be formed in World War II. And we had two types of dogs. We had what we call messenger dogs, and the rest of the platoon was made up of Doberman pinchers, and they were trained for scouting and attack work. Tell me what the messenger dogs did. I mean, their name is fairly straightforward, and what kinds of dogs they were. We had three messengers. There was Thor, Jack, and Caesar, and each dog had two handlers. And the idea of the messenger dogs, they wore special collars where we could put messages in the collars, and usually one handler would stay in the command post. The other handler would go out with a patrol Vital information is hastily written out for dispatch to the outpost position to the rear. An emergency ammunition supply is urgently needed if the patrol is to hold out. And instead of a soldier runner, the messenger dog will do the job. His speed and size make him a tough target, and there's no halt or backward glance until he comes to the ammunition supply point. Of course, they also start shooting at our dogs, (laughs) and Caesar was our best messenger dog. Tell me about Caesar. I want to know all about him. Well, he was just easily trained. He was very intelligent. And actually, there's a memorial of Caesar in some museum someplace. Do you think a dog like Caesar was aware of the risks? Do you sense that the dogs knew that the work was dangerous? Well, we trained them to ignore gunfire because in combat... It's a lot of big, noisy shooting and yelling, and they did their duties beautifully. He asks for no reward. A pat on the back, 
Any little acknowledgement by his master are sufficient. The whole war dog idea was successful, and today it still goes on in big time. The dogs no doubt saved lives. Tell me about that. Our dogs were trained to alert the handler whenever there was a foreign, another person or whatever, so that we had much fewer ambushes. And, you know, we trained the dogs to a cack on command, and uh, somebody had to be a spook and put the padded clothes on to agitate the dogs. Part of our training, sometimes we'd take the dog out and hide and then the rest of the guys would come along with the other dogs trying to find. And uh, I could fall asleep in, under a bush or something, and my dog would let me know when anybody came near. His mission of success, the dog's complete happiness is expressed in his every movement. A portrait of service, obedience, and devotion to the job. Especially at night in a foxhole, a dog's a pretty nice companion. Because if anybody starts stirring around, they're going to know it. And when you go into combat, you're sleeping with them and you're living with them and you're feeding them. And you really fall in love with your dog. And uh, it was sad. I think Caesar was the first one to get wounded. He finished his message run, even though he had been shot. And uh, then they brought him in to an aid station and a stretcher, and uh, he revived and did more. In fact, I think he went on beyond Bougainville. Bougainville, this is an island east of Papua New Guinea, and this was a, a U.S. invasion of that island. What became of the dogs after the war? Well, we were more or less an experimental unit, but we learned that people were volunteering their dogs, the idea that if the dog survived the war and was used, they would be first detrained, and then the owner, original owner could have them back if they wanted them. Of course, some of the dogs could not be detrained, and I think Camp Lejeune was where they did most of that type of training. And I took a trip to the war dog area, you know, the training area, and I saw one of my dogs in one of the cages. And I, I made a comment to the guy that was showing me around. Said, There's a dog I had over on Bougainville. And he said, well, he's pretty vicious, so you better be careful. Don't get too close to him. And I said, well, Jack is going to remember me, I know. So and this kind of tears me up when I think about it. But uh, I did step into the, the run, through the gate, into the run where the dog was. He knew me right away, put his paws up on my shoulder and started licking my face. And it was just like a family reunion, you know. Four-year-old Homer Finley of Longmont, who was part of the Marines' war dog platoon in World War II. Lots of great photos of pooches and their handlers at CPR.org. And you can learn much more about the subject in the book War Animals, The Unsung Heroes of World War II, 
by Robin Hutton. Many veterans rely on specially trained service dogs for conditions like PTSD and anxiety, but the animals are expensive and they're not covered by the VA. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce tells us some in Congress think it's time for that to change. Air Force veteran Ken Morrow's black German Shepherd Toby is always at his side. Morrow never deployed, but he was subjected to years of loud explosions and was hit really hard in the head while on the job. I have traumatic brain injury. I have hearing issues. I have mobility issues. Primarily vertigo. Morrow trained with Toby for months at the facility where we're standing now, run by a nonprofit in Colorado Springs. If I started walking away like I was going to fall, he would pull out of my trainer's hand and come charge and cover me up. To prove his point, Morrow demonstrates. He gives Toby's leash to a trainer, and starts walking away, then begins stumbling a little. Immediately, Toby reacts, whining and pulling hard at the leash. The trainer lets go of Toby, who sprints to Morrow, now laying on the ground. Hey, calm down. You're fine. You're fine. I'm fine. The trainer who was holding Toby is Steve Corey. Founder and CEO of Victory Service Dogs. Corey himself is an Army veteran. He started his nonprofit in 2015. And since then, we've helped about 250 veterans. Matching veterans with a dog and facilitating their training together, usually for up to two full years. It's a process that costs thousands of dollars, but the veterans only have to pay a $50 application fee. Donors cover the rest. The dog makes an immediate difference, and it's with them 24-7. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs will help veterans obtain and care for service dogs if the veteran suffers from certain physical problems like blindness or deafness, but not for psychological problems like PTSD. The agency started researching the effectiveness of service dogs for psychological symptoms years ago. A VA spokesperson said in a statement, the complexity and scope of the study go well beyond any others attempted on the subject. That's because, as the VA's chief veterinary medical officer, Michael Fallon, told American Homefront in 2017, The VA is primarily based upon evidence-based medicine, and we certainly would want people to utilize a therapy that has proven value. Without that proven value, the VA isn't ready to devote money to train service dogs. But some in Congress are tired of waiting for the VA's research. They're part of an effort to get more federal resources to match more dogs with more vets. I'm here for the veterans who have lost faith in the system, lost hope for themselves, and have lost purpose in their lives. Former Marine Corporal Cole Lyle speaking before a congressional subcommittee in 2016, his service dog Kaya at his feet. Lyle's life fell apart after his service in Afghanistan. Losing military friends to suicide, he nearly chose the same path himself. I still have my bad days, but with Kaya at my side, I'm largely in a different phase. I call it recovery. Service dogs will save lives. The problem is training Kaya cost Lyle about $10,000. The former Marine helped write the PAWS Act, which would create a $10 million grant fund through the VA. 
That money would go to organizations like Victory Service Dogs in Colorado Springs. How bad can it go? We're giving them a dog, for God's sake. That's Florida Republican Representative John Rutherford, who reintroduced the PAWS Act this year after it failed to pass its first time around. We don't have any scientific data yet, but we have tons of anecdotal stories of service members saying, look, but for that dog, I would be dead today. Aside from the VA, some science is trickling out in support of service dogs for veterans. A study published last year by Purdue University found veterans suffering PTSD with service dogs slept better and experienced less anger and anxiety than those without. Steve Corey at Victory Service Dogs says he thinks the government has all the proof it needs that service dogs help. Is it a medical treatment, though? I'm not a doctor, so I can't really answer that, but I think it's therapeutic. The VA has been running a small pilot program to pair service dogs with veterans who have mental health issues. Though the New York Times reported this summer only 19 veterans had received dogs through the program so far. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. Sagebrush is not the most charismatic plant. It's pretty much a dusty blur in 1933's The Sagebrush Trail, starring a young John Wayne. You head for the corral on foot. Get a horse and make for the abandoned mine while I circle around and draw off these star packers. Why should you take all the chances? I know this country better than you do. I'll meet you at the hideout. All right, John. Walk up close and Sagebrush's leaves are gray, hairy looking, but it's a crucial part of the West's ecosystem. It supports 350 animal and plant species. And as one of our listeners pointed out recently, it's in trouble. Stephen Molesky of Fort Collins wrote to Colorado Wonders to say there are thousands of acres of dead sagebrush all around Hovenweep and Canyons of the Ancients in southwestern Colorado. So to understand what's going on in the 14 states where sagebrush is vanishing, wildlife biologist Marcella Tarantino of Gunnison is with us. She works for Bird Conservancy of the Rockies and with buy-in from the USDA, helps preserve sagebrush on private land. Marcella, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I want to see sagebrush through your eyes. What do you see when you look at it? Sagebrush has far more diversity than most people realize. So as you mentioned, a lot of people just see it driving by at 65 miles an hour on the highway. Um, But if you get out of your car and see up close, in Colorado alone, we have about 20 species of sagebrush. So there's a ton of diversity just from that perspective alone. Sagebrush is not one thing, in other words. Right, yeah. And different wildlife species use different plant species in different ways as far as food or cover goes. Okay, so sagebrush is food. Mm -hmm. Sagebrush is a home. Mm -hmm. What else is sagebrush? So it does provide a great way for nutrient cycling to occur. So um, it deposits leaves that break down and provide carbon for growth of future plants, but then also it creates an eddy out area for snow to deposit. And that's very important for water. So it helps to retain moisture on the landscape for a little bit longer than some other plant So sa- sagebrush is almost part reservoir. In a way, yeah. And sagebrush, almost like aspen, is connected. Yes. Sagebrush has about... 200 to 300 chemicals that they can use to communicate with other plants. So the smells that you smell when you are out in sagebrush country, that's primarily camphor is what we smell, and that's what's in Vicks VapoRub. And those chemicals can be elevated if different 
herbivores are browsing on the plant or if they're experiencing any sort of mechanical damage. So if you were to, say, drive over sagebrush, um, that's when you start to smell it really strongly. And that is a message. It's a mm-hmm. it's a kind of olfactory message yep. to other sagebrush. Yeah. And then once they get that message, they'll all start to increase their production of those chemicals. And they're really, really bitter. So if you ever taste sagebrush. (laughs) It's quite bitter, and that's what's used to deter other herbivores. Okay, so it may be food. It's not food for you, however, Marcella. Right. Okay. (laughs) I'm blown away by this description of sagebrush, and so critical to the West's ecosystems. Yeah, and it is important food for a wide variety of species. So sage grouse, both Gunnison and greater sage grouse, eat sagebrush entirely in the winter, but then they'll also include some insects and forbs or wildflowers in summer. These are ground-dwelling birds, which Mm -hmm. themselves have faced questions of their future. Uh, What other critters? The pygmy rabbit is not found in Colorado, but they are also obligates, so they eat sagebrush. And then mule deer and pronghorn are also consuming sagebrush all winter, so those are important for those species as well. Now, when I see a tumbleweed, is that old dead sagebrush? No, no. Um, okay. There are a few other plants that, that are that kind of the traditional. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm glad to know this. Yeah. Well, how big is the sagebrush die-off across the West? Okay. That's a great question. So there are a few different ways to look at it. As far as individual plants dying, that's likely a drought-related issue. So after severe droughts, which would be 2018, (laughs) there can be around 15 to 30 percent mortality of individual plants. And that's pretty common after major droughts. So in 2002 and 2012, we also saw die-off events. Now, drought, of course, has always been a part of the natural rhythms of the West. Do we have some sense that climate change or invasives are playing a role here? Yes. So droughts are increasing in frequency across the West. And so it's getting um, hotter and drier. mm -hmm. And that's expected to continue. And so while having mortality of individual plants is expected after droughts, the rate with which we'll see that will increase. And so it may lead to sparser stands in the future. So it's not unusual what our listener is seeing these dying stands Correct. of sagebrush, you have seen this with your own eyes across Colorado. I did, especially this summer. And um, there is typically a lag effect. So although you would somewhat expect plants to die off in 2018, but there is a lag or a carryover so that we really saw the visible signs of mortality this year. And part of that so is... Sagebrush kind of holds on mm-hmm. for dear life <laughs> until it gives up. Yeah, sagebrush is considered to be a really drought-tolerant plant. So Typically, people don't think of it dying during droughts, but Uh um, when they're very severe, so multi-year droughts or extremely dry years like last year is the most likely time to see. Die off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, are invasives a part of this? Yes. So probably the biggest issue with invasives that we see across the West right now is cheatgrass. So it's an invasive annual plant that comes from Asia, and it arrived in the Columbia River Basin a a little over a century ago. So the north... West. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's been spreading across the Great Basin and has shown up in Colorado for several decades, but it's really increasing now. And that fills in a lot of those open spaces and 
it's very fire prone. So it builds up fine fuels and then burns quickly and hot. And that's not great for sagebrush, I'm guessing. (laughs) Yes. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. My guest is Marcella Tarantino. She's wildlife biologist for the Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. Uh, She's based in Gunnison and she is working to preserve sagebrush across the West Uh, which is so critical to other species, including birds. You might think of the sage grouse, for instance. And there has been a lot of controversy over how sage grouse and their environments should be managed. To what extent should the government play a role versus landowners? What sorts of success are you having working with private landowners to conserve? Yeah, so private landowners have a large chunk of the ground that sage grouse need. And in particular, when the West was claimed, most of the private landowners chose locations that have water resources. And that's really important for grouse when they're raising their chicks. So the chicks will typically eat, we call them forbs, but it's wildflowers and things like that. And then insects, which rely on the water. So you'll find more insects in areas with high water. So a lot of those private land areas are really important for raising chicks, um, as well as then the greater sagebrush ecosystem has a lot of diversity. So that's where they go for summer and winter. And are you noticing that uh, ranchers and farm owners and landowners of all sorts are aware of how important sagebrush is? Or do they hold some of the same maybe misconceptions or underwhelm (laughs) with the plant (laughs) that some of us do? I think it varies place to place. So historically, sagebrush was actually written into a book called Weeds of the West, even though it's a native plant, but it was considered kind of a trash plant. And so there was a lot of mowing or burning to try to get rid of sagebrush. And I think there are still some people who don't like it and try to get rid of it. But I would say, by and large, most of the landowners now are pretty aware of the value of it. Um, And like I mentioned earlier, sagebrush does collect water by um, allowing snow to eddy out behind it. So the grasses in that area will typically have Um, be more robust than if you were to get rid of all of the sagebrush and try to just grow grass for cattle. So I think a lot of people are starting to realize that it's really important. Well, thanks so much, Marcella, for being with us. Thank you. Marcella Tarantino is a wildlife biologist for the Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. She's based in Gunnison, and she helped us answer a question we received through Colorado Wonders about sagebrush and where it's dying off in the West. What do you wonder about our state? Send us your questions, cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with why your Tabor refund won't be coming in the mail. Plus... The musicians behind this musical marriage of trumpet and digital sounds. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. CPR's active community of support has allowed CPR News to increase coverage of our state, CPR Classical to reach more of Colorado, and Indy 1023 to deliver the best in new and local music. Thank you. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Mia, I'm going to get a mic check. Um, What did you eat at lunch? A salad. It was okay. What kind of salad? I have no idea. (laughs) It was a salad. It had chicken in it. 
So this is 17-year-old Mia Garcia of Antonito in southern Colorado. She was headed home from an awards banquet in Denver and stopped by our studio. Mia, what was this award for? I help kids in foster care with comfort packages. What's in a comfort package? It has changed throughout the years. So my first year, I got them dream lights, and then the second year... Well, let's stop there. What's a dream light? Or a pillow pet dream light. It's a pillow that looked like a pet or an animal, and it had a dream light in it. And why did you want to give them these lights? Well, it all started when my cousins were placed in kinship with my grandma, and one night when they were, when we spent the night with them, they came crying to my grandma that their nightlight burnt out and they couldn't fall asleep. And so... And they were afraid of the dark. Yes. So you heard this, and you thought, I want to give them light. Yes. And a a pillow, will you describe a little bit more, what what is it, a pillow pet? Yeah, a pillow pet dream light. (laughs) Pillow pet dream light. So this is like a stuffed animal that glows. Yes. And what was their reaction when you got them light? The, the smile on their faces, yeah, it made me really happy to see that I put a smile on their face. Okay, so this starts within your own family. Yes. And then you realize that it's possible kids in the foster care system might have the same experience. Yes. Were you afraid of the dark when you were a kid? No. You were not? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> okay, so um, the initial comfort, what did you call them again? Comfort packages? Yes. Okay, the, the initial ones have these lights in them. And then what else? Have you been putting in them? So the second, when I continued my project, the second year I got them like school supplies. So it's just stuff that will benefit them. And we got 28 kids, their full school supplies list. And that was year two? Yes. And this is in Antonito and what? the, the Thru- bro- It's throughout the whole San Luis Valley. The whole, the whole valley. Okay. And how many years has this been going on now? Since I was 10 years old. And you're now 17. Yes. Seven years. Uh, What else has been put into these comfort packages over the years? Uh, I've also gathered uh, hygiene kits. And that's like what, toothbrushes? Yeah, like shampoo and deodorant and like stuff like that. Have you been able to see the reactions of the foster kids when they get this stuff? No. No. That's anonymous. Yes. So you're doing this without the glory of giving the kids this directly. You just are knowing that this happens and you feel good about it. Yes. Wow. I like to help people feel better. <laughs> I, I imagine you're sick of answering this question from adults. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to study if you want to go to college? I love talking about this, actually. (laughs) Um, I want to go into criminology or sociology, criminology, criminal justice. Yeah. Um, Because I could go into, I have to get my master's in it, so, but I could go into being a social worker so I could still help the kids in foster care. Or I could go be a lawyer or a probation officer. The main point or the main reason why I want to go into this is because I don't want to quit helping people. Like I know with what I'm going into, I'm going to help someone every single day. That is 17-year-old Mia Garcia of Antonito, Colorado, who just received the Outstanding Youth Award presented by the Daniels Fund for National Philanthropy Day. (music) 
parents navigate murky waters when it comes to kids and smartphones. Recently, as part of our series Teens Under Stress, we invited some parents to talk to each other about their fears and successes when it comes to phones. The discussion prompted some more questions, as my colleague Avery Lill explains. A listener reached out and wanted to know about how parents are dealing with other technologies beyond smartphones, like tablets and iPads. Our parents panel tackled that topic, too. For example, Cherie Garcia doesn't allow her kids to have smartphones until they graduate high school. And she takes a similar stance on tablets. They're not allowed to have iPads, iPod touches, because those can certainly be hacked into a phone. You know, right? You can get an iPad and you can text on it. You can go Mm -hmm. on social media. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't allow social media either. The other parents who are a part of our conversation do allow their kids to use social media, but they monitor it across all platforms. Now, Garcia's eighth grade daughter does use a computer for school, but there are safeguards in place. They're in Littleton Public Schools. Middle school kids and high school kids, they get a Chromebook at the beginning of the year Mm -hmm. and then they bring it home. And then that's just their Chromebook throughout the whole year. And the school has very strict settings on them and they actually monitor them because my daughter had some emails back and forth with a girl where the girl was going through a lot of depression. And so they were going back and forth. Mm -hmm. And the counselor at the school actually gave me a call and said, hey, the tech teacher saw this come up. And I just Mm -hmm. wanted to let you know, I talked to your daughter and I talked to the other girl and everybody's safe and it's good. So I know. So hearing that made me feel really good to know that it is monitored. Right. Because you hear a lot of stuff from schools, but you Mm -hmm. don't know. So Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) I just it's just worked really well. You can also find suggestions for parents, teens, and teachers on how to set healthy technology boundaries at CPR.org teens. While you're there, tell us about your experiences with teens and screens. I'm Avery Lill, CPR News. And our series Teens Under Stress tackles a different issue next time. That's the academic pressure the teens are under. We'll explore ideas of perfectionism and the concept of a whole child score. The realities of the classroom coming soon. In the digital era, military recruiters can't rely on traditional methods like setting up booths at the mall. So they're trying something new to win over Generation Z, video games. Here is CPR Max Wysick News Fellow Taylor Allen. Call of Duty Modern Warfare is one of the most anticipated video game releases of the fall. The rules of engagement have changed. The game leads players through military missions and combat. If you can't identify the target... You are the target. So it makes sense that Go Army Colorado picked this game to be the centerpiece of a recent recruiting event at the localhost arena in Lakewood. It's a dark room the size of a large warehouse, lit mainly by the glow from rows and rows of computer screens. The people playing wear headphones. You hear the excited chatter of players and controllers clicking. Anyone who came to the game's release party was able to play the new game, as long as they also spoke to Army recruiters. James Love is the general manager at Localhost. He says the staff was surprised when the Army showed up one day and said they wanted to collaborate. I got some sideways glances. Most people said, yes, you know, we would love that. Love says they agreed because the partnership is mutually beneficial. The Army wants to recruit, and Love wants his business to attract everyone. There are gamers and nerds in the Army. There are gamers and nerds down the street. We want them all in here playing as a community because we want to show people just how diverse we are. 
this is the goal of the Army, too, to show gamers that there is a fun side to the military. It's not all just buzz cuts and boot camp. This is the targeted, you know, demographic, you know, these you know, young men and women that come out here to play the esports. Sergeant Vincent Cruz is a recruiter. He says video games are a way for the Army to connect with more people. It even started a professional esports team, which has become part of his pitch. Reach out to these, these men and women and show them actually, hey, you can actually do this in the Army and get paid, by the way. In fiscal year 2020, the goal for the region that includes Colorado is about 2,000 new recruits. But for the past few years, the recruiters here haven't been meeting their targets, only signing up about 80 percent of the people they need. That mirrors national struggles for the Army. Cruz says the old ways to attract potential recruits just aren't working the way they used to. Phone calls and, you know, text messages is not, you know, the way to go. Traditionally, that's how we've been, been trying to reach out to the population. Uh, for here, it's very difficult, you know what I mean? So now it's more like the Facebook, Instagram, uh, Snapchat. Do it! Across the gaming arena, 17-year-old Gavin Gaines is sitting at one of the computers, staring at the bright screen. How is he doing so far? I've died like four times in three missions, so I'm not going to say greatest. Gaines says he isn't ready for college yet, and he's about 95% sure he wants to go to the military. A big reason for him is community. It's always just kind of been a big motivator for me, is just kind of like having somewhere where I belong. I like the military because it's like, you're not even necessarily like everyone, but it's like you know they have your back type of thing. Out of about 110 people that attended the eSports event, the military says it gained 35 leads. Michelle Alcantar is also 17 and a brand new recruit. She'll graduate in December, and by the summer, she's off to boot camp in Oklahoma. She got into video games through her brother-in-law, who's also in the Army. Call of Duty is a favorite. Both gaming and the military are stereotypically guy things. But she's proud to be a woman doing both of them. To me, it's really special because not a lot of women, um, I feel like, are represented in the Army. And I feel like it's such a power move for women just because, like, we can do the same thing men can. Um, and we're finally allowed to do that after I know that years that we couldn't. Alcantar also ended up winning a raffle that night. She went home with a copy of the new game for Xbox. But she didn't say whether she'll take it to boot camp with her. I'm Taylor Allen, CPR News. It was the hottest issue on last week's ballot, and it's still drawing questions from our listeners. Colorado voters decided to keep the tax refunds they're entitled to under TABOR, the Taxpayer's Bill of Rights. A quick refresher, TABOR limits how much money the state can collect in a year and returns the rest to you. That's unless voters decide otherwise. And they rejected Proposition CC, which would have let the state spend that money on roads and schools. Well, Christine McKinnon of Denver had some questions about her refund through Colorado Wonders. I was thinking back and realized that in my 20 years of living in Colorado, I do not recall having ever received a Tabor tax refund. I do understand that the refunds are not issued in all years, but what is the procedure for this and how do I know if I'm, number one, if I'm receiving a Tabor refund and number two, how much it is? McKinnon is right that Tabor refunds don't show up every year. They only come when the economy's booming. That's happening now, so there will be refunds next spring. And the number crunchers say they'll probably continue for a couple of years. We put McKinnon's questions to a Tabor expert. Henry Sobonet served as budget chief under two Colorado governors. The first question is really people are wondering, are they getting a check in the mail? 
And the answer to that is no. The legislature a long time ago decided that was too expensive to mail and print checks for millions of taxpayers. All right. Well, how does the money get from the state's bank account to your wallet? Here's the gist. First dibs on the money goes to two groups, disabled veterans and people 65 and older who've lived in their homes at least a decade. What's left is divvied up among the rest of taxpayers. So if you look really carefully at your state income tax form next spring, you'll see the tax rate has dropped from 4.63% to 4.5%. That temporary dip is your Tabor refund. Next time, it could come as a sales tax rebate or a mix. Finally, how much money will our questioner Christine McKinnon get? This year, state forecasters say it could range from $10 to $629, depending on how much she makes, which we're not sharing here. For the record, though, McKinnon, an engineer and a parent, says if the refunds are relatively small, she'd rather the state keep the money for transportation and education. She voted for Prop CC. He is one of Colorado's best trumpet players, and he takes the instrument to an unexpected place on a new album. This is John Adler, associate professor of trumpet at the University of Northern Colorado, and that's where he recorded the album Scarlet Rising Moon, with a composer from Brooklyn, Adam Cuthbert, came up with the digital processing of the trumpet. The two have worked for years on this music, and uh, anyone who purchases the album can take the work even further. We'll talk about that kind of open source approach in just a few moments. But Adam, John, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, in layman's terms, Adam, how does one digitally process a trumpet? Help us understand what we've been hearing here. Yeah, I'd say it's um, it's kind of like running a guitar through a pedal effects board, um, except instead of a pedal effects board, it's just uh, it's software on a laptop. It's software. And is this software you wrote yourself or that you've purchased? No, it's a, it's a digital audio workstation called Ableton Live. It's uh, kind of the favorite of a lot of DJs, electronic musicians, and uh, you know, not so hip in the classical music scene right now. So I kind of wanted to expand on that. Bring this to the classical world. I wonder if this is the kind of software that in a way feels limitless, like uh, it couldn't even be fully explored in one person's lifetime. Yeah, it's like really big option paralysis when you first open it. You you really can <laughs> do anything. Um, and so it's it's been fun just like trying to decide where you can go with the trumpet. Um, I love this idea of option paralysis. What led you to approach the trumpet this way? Were you bored with the trumpet sound, John? I don't know about bored, but I definitely felt as an improviser, especially, that the the trumpet is a bit limiting. Uh, And the range that you can get, the amount of colors and sound effects and things that you can create. And by going through and using electronics, it just completely opens up to a whole new world of sounds that you can use to create a really true kind of embodiment of true improvisation in its most kind of pure form. Now, there are, of course, mutes, right, that you can add to a trumpet. There are accessories that can change 
it sounds. But uh, how how long have you been playing trumpet now? Oh, uh, it t- started uh, as the typical um, person does in sixth grade band, you know, and just kind of did it all the way through and did uh, three college degrees and then started teaching. But I've always really been drawn to new music and creating new music and, you know, improvising along the same path. And bringing more to the trumpet. Uh, Adam, you're well-studied in classical music and composition, but that hasn't always been your first love. Video game soundtracks were some of your earliest inspirations. What, What about them appeals to you? That um yeah that's that's sort of what got me into music school in the first place is I was I was just a game nerd in uh, in middle school high school and uh, these soundtracks are are kind of incredible they're very location based you know like a like a big epic RPG may have a hundred background tracks as you as you go through the game and they're all very like emotionally centric or location centric um, and that was there there it's very melodic as well so i kind of tied that to trumpet from a young age and like i did a lot of self self teaching myself figuring out these melodies and what were some of the games you played whose soundtracks stand out oh the uh, the sega dreamcast was was my jam so like mm-hmm. the old pirate rpg skies of arcadia there's a there's a space game called fantasy star online which had incredible like futuristic sounding space soundtracks that uh, I always wanted to figure out how those sounds were created. Will you explain what RPG is for non-gamers? Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a role-playing game. Yeah. You, know, you start at level one, really bad stats, and uh, you, know, you fight your way up to you know, design your character. Well, the piece Rekai on this new album uh, is the one that got you two working together. I really hear the video game influence in this. <laughs> mm-hmm. John, what drew you to this? It's really interesting. I was doing a master class, as university professors do. We travel around and do master classes at various places. And I was visiting Grand Valley States, uh, promoting a CD that I had just done, uh, Confronting Inertia. And out comes Adam with his giant cart of things and speakers, computer, and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, boy, this is going to be a different experience. And he played this piece. It wasn't even finished. I heard maybe the first two, three minutes. Only time I've ever just been completely kind of speechless in one of those classes. Like, I don't really have anything to say other than I want this piece when you're done with it. And there are a lot of possibilities. And that kind of is how the whole project got started. So when you heard the kind of proto-track, did you start to think of trumpet along with it? Well, Adam is a trumpet player, and so he was actually performing it when I heard it. So It had trumpet from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, and he so he was playing the trumpet part, and I was just thinking it was going to be something where he would send it to me, I would get to play it on recitals and things that I was doing, and then it turned into way more than, than that. How did you feel when you got approached by John Adam? To do this, I was I was super flattered because uh, well I was it was my last year of undergrad and I had just sort of resigned myself to the fact that I didn't want to do like a symphony orchestra life. Um, I, w- I just wasn't super stoked on the dead composers the way I think you had to be to like live in that competitive world. And mm. I, I really kind of wanted to just 
you know, play with synthesizers and press buttons and twist knobs and make music with it like it's video games. And uh, so to have have John come in and be like, yo, like, send me this when it's done. I want to play this, too. Like that was that was a really uh, it was a motivating thing. Put me in the right direction. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about an unusual collaboration of trumpets and electronic digital music. John Adler joins us from the University of Northern Colorado and composer Adam Cuthbert. Uh, this new album is called Scarlet Rising Moon. Uh, I understand um, how, you know, some of this might work with the trumpets, I, I guess I want to know more about the collaboration itself. Like, how do you execute it? Is it the digital tracks first? Is it the trumpet first? Are you doing this in real time? Help us understand how it's composed. Yeah, it's. Um, I guess it's a little complicated. So um, the software I'm using is very, very modular. So it's it's really built for DJs doing beats and stuff. So you can you can drop in a loop and say, you know, this this beat's gonna cruise for like you know 16 bars, and then it may loop again and may it may advance further on. Um, but you ultimately, as the as the digital music performer, ha- kind of have a say in the speed and pacing as you as you go through it, uh, and that's not really something that exists in classical music. So I wanted to try to um, figure out like a modular approach to notated music. And you know, John, we started, we decided we wanted to make a piece together, and um, I wanted to also take advantage of John's like sort of limitless improv vernacular. Um, and that also means, you know, if you want to take a solo in the middle of the piece, you know, the, the piece has to kind of give you space to improv for, you know, 15 seconds or a minute or like however long, you know, you want to as the player. So it's like you're building in almost little escape hatches where John can come in. Yeah, yeah. And, and John will press a button on a controller that says, OK, I'm, I'm done soloing now. I'm, I'm ready to move on to the next huh. like notated part. John, how is this for you? Explain the experience. Yeah, it's it's first it's fantastic from a creative standpoint because some of the kind of things that can get tiring about playing classical music is you end up playing the same thing the same way so many times. Yeah. And this piece, because it's going to be completely different every single time, really has limitless um, just outputs for creativity. It's always different, which is really exciting for me as a performer. And you could also just gauge in real time what the audience vibe is or how you are feeling at the time. If something is going great, you can improvise a little bit more. If you're not really feeling it in whatever section it is, you just kind of move on. And the piece is so well-crafted that you know, it could do that and nothing sounds like it's ever out of place or you would never even know. And if you're exhausted, you can, like, take an extra five <laughs> seconds to, like, chill. And you don't have to wait for the pianist to, like, cue you in ASAP. Yeah, this is true. There is a very practical part of that also. It kind I of mean, overwrote the uh, endurance side of the piece. It's, it's brutal <laughs> to get through. Well, not that trumpet is that easy either. I mean, I took trumpet as a kid, and uh, I remember it, it, a lot of breath control was required. Definitely. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's it's been interesting for me as a teacher having gone through and when I you know kind of 
commissioned or we decided we were going to do this piece, I thought I was going to be getting another piece kind of like Rakai, which is about eight minutes. You push play and you kind of, you know, play till the end. And what I got was about 35 minutes <laughs> of super interactive things that the piece could be, you know, it could be an hour long if you really stretched it out. Wow. And so I had to really go through and uh, kind of evaluate my technique. So you released the album last week and did so rather unusually. It comes out on a USB flash drive. And it includes the actual files of the songs that listeners can open and work in using some of the same software you use. What's the idea here? Well, it's 2019 and nobody I know has a CD player anymore. Uh (laughs) So that's kind of out. Vinyl records are, you know, arguably making a comeback, but that's really pricey to make and... You know, so we could do cassette tapes or we could do just on, on the Internet or we could do something where, like, you know, all of, all of this music sort of exists as digital files as well. Um, so I thought, why And you not? like this idea of others kind of hacking the music. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I sort of am of the opinion that, like, when you're a composer, like, once your piece is done, it's, it's not really yours anymore. Hmm. So, you, you know, be free. Go, my child. <laughs> and spawn and spawn other children, other musical children, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. So like you can you can grab it, you can grab the flash drive and you can remix it, you can play it yourself, you can just farm all my samples and make your own music out of like, you know, John's recording. Thank you both for being with us. Fascinating stuff. Great, thanks. Thank you. Adam Cuthbert and John Adler's new album is Scarlet Rising Moon. They perform tonight at Campus Commons on the campus of the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. And that's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner.